receive the offering. Why don't you guys go ahead and pull out your Bibles. Go ahead and pull out your Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, 24. This is our last Sunday in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, and so it was supposed to be, uh, this sermon was supposed to be last week, but then uh, my wife's grandmother passed away, so we, we left town and Binger preached a sermon last week where Solomon dies, and we're going to go back in time, and Solomon's going to be alive again. So if you're confused by that, uh, we just had to pull a little switcheroo. And so this is our last Sunday in 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you didn't, if you didn't bring a Bible, you're going to want a Bible. There's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can reach down there and pull one of those out. 1 Samuel 24 in the blue Bible is on page uh, 274. Page 274 in the blue Bible. And at this point in the story, I said a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, we talked about how Saul tries, King Saul tries to kill David, right? Um, he, he, gets, he kind of loses his mind in this, in this moment of, of envy, which led to jealousy, and then jealousy, which led to anger, and anger led to hate. He tries to spear uh, David. He tries to pin him to the wall with a spear, tries to do it twice. And David escapes, and he, and he flees, he runs. And really the rest of the book, the, the, the rest of the remaining chapters um, is the story of Saul pursuing David again and again and again and again and again, trying to capture him, trying to kill him, uh, hunting him down. Saul devotes really the rest of his life to, to, to killing David. And that is what his life's goal is. There's a few times when he becomes distracted by his real job as king, but, but then he goes right back to pursuing David. And there's a few really interesting moments in this pursuit. There's, there's, a, there's actually a number of them, but there's two really, really interesting moments where uh, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. And the first one comes in chapter 24. Saul um, gathers, he hears that David is up in this hill country um, where the shepherds uh, would, would take their sheep and their goats. And he hears that, the, that David is up in this hill country, and David is there. He's hiding out in a cave there. But Saul doesn't know he's hiding out in a cave. He just knows that he's in that area. Saul takes 3,000 of his best men to go find David. And David is hiding in a cave. He's hiding in a cave up in this hill country, and Saul and his men are there searching for David. And, and Saul has to go to the bathroom. And so Saul goes into the cave. King Saul leaves his men, goes into the cave to go to the bathroom. And it happens to be the exact cave where David and his men are hiding. And they see him there. And this happens in, in chapter 24. And we're going to pick it up together um, in verse 4. And here at Flourishing Grace, for those of you who are new, we believe that the Word of God is, is that. It's the Word of God. And so in honor and reverence to it, would you stand with me as I read it for us this morning? 1 Samuel 24, picking up in verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. And you shall do to him as it, as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, that's Saul, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men 
with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. David has about 400 men with him at this time. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave. And he called Saul, my Lord, my king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my, out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord revenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore judge me and, and sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my, my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day, and you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what, what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Everyone, everyone in this room, everyone on the planet has convictions of things that we, ways that we believe things should be, right? Uh, we believe that people should act a certain way and do things a certain way, and we have deep convictions about how we should be and how we should act. Maybe some of those deeper convictions for you came from, uh, came, come from your faith. Hopefully some of them come from your faith. Um, may, maybe for you those deeper convictions might come from how you were raised, how your parents taught you to act, or how your parents taught you to be. Um, when, when it comes to uh, times when you say, no, 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 people should tell the truth. And so therefore uh, you, you just, you're a truth teller. You, you say, I will, I will not lie. Maybe that's one of your convictions. Maybe your conviction is, um, 
People should, um, should love others the way that they want to be loved. And so you, you give your life to striving towards that. Uh, maybe you have convi- conviction that uh, you should only pass people in the left lane of traffic. And so you get angry when you see other people passing people in the right lane. And you get angry when you see people driving in the right lane. When you be, when they, or driving in the left lane when you say they should be driving in the left. Right? And then you, you have these. So some of our convictions are lighthearted convictions. And some of them are, are deeper and more serious convictions. But all of us have convictions on, on the way that we think life should be and how we should act. How many of you would say, um, man, I have a conviction that I should love my spouse and honor my spouse over myself? How many of you would say, that's a conviction that I hold? How many of you would say, yeah, you're sitting next to your spouse, so you have to raise your hand. Um, it's a trick. Uh, you would say that. You would say, man, I, I believe, I have a firm conviction that I should love and honor my spouse more than I should love and honor myself. They should be, be first. That's what, we've, uh, that's, what, that's what the commitment that I've made on my wedding day, that I would love them more than I would love myself, that I would lay down my life and my desires for them. The question is, what causes us, what causes us to compromise our convictions? What, what causes us to, to sacrifice our convictions? When are, we most, when are we most vulnerable to this? What is the moment that um, we are most vulnerable to stumbling in this area? I'm going to make the case this morning that the moment that you are most vulnerable and that I am most vulnerable is in our times of discomfort. When comfort has been removed from us, we begin to sacrifice our convictions, right? You, you, don't, you don't sacrifice your conviction to love your spouse more than yourself when everything is great. When you had the best day at the office and, and, the, and you come home and the kids are just super well behaved and everything just goes perfectly that evening, right? That's not the moment that you engage in an argument with your spouse over some silly thing. That's not the moment. You know this. The moment is when you had the worst day at work and you come home and you're tired and you're hungry and things just have not gone your way and your kids are just going crazy like, like animals in the corner and you're like, what are you doing? Right? That's the moment. That's the moment when we begin to lose our minds. That's the moment when we begin to love ourselves more than we love our spouse. That's the moment when we're ready to sacrifice our convictions because discomfort has come into our lives. The comfort has been removed. Things are not the way they should be. And now I'm going to sacrifice my conviction in order to get my way. We know this is true. This is, this is simple, right? This is why torture works, right? Throughout centuries, kingdoms and nations have used torture in order to e- extract information from people, right? By the removing of comfort, people will sacrifice their convictions. We, we know this is true, right? If I can remove enough comfort from you, you will sacrifice your convictions. You will, you will say things that you normally wouldn't say. You would turn your back on people against you and people who you normally would never turn your back on. You'll do things that you normally would say, man, I would never do that. But if you remove enough comfort, we know that you actually would do that. It's in the moment when we are at our lowest, in the most despair, in the most broken, 
that we do things that we normally would say, man, I would never do that. I would never do that. And I believe that this is actually where David is in this moment. We know this from, from the Psalms. As you read through the Psalms, David writes, uh, the bulk of the Psalms are written by David. And he writes many of them during this season of his life where he is being hunted by Saul. He's, he's hunted by Saul for years of his life. Um, and really, truly, in kind of the most horrible way. Imagine for a moment, if you could never go home you could never hold a job. Your, your life is devoted to just hiding and running and trying to escape, trying to never get caught. Like that is your life. An entire nation, right? He has at his disposal the, the army of a nation. 3,000 of his best soldiers are coming after you. Right? This, this guy, this David, who, who just, just a short time earlier was just a shepherd boy. A young shepherd. Now, he does have 400 men with him, about 400 men, who have kind of just sided with him. Most of them are family and friends, but then others are people who just don't like Saul very much. And they've, they've, they've gathered with David, but they're not, they're not there to fight. I mean, that's kind of part of it, but they're, they're there to protect him a little bit. But they stand no chance against Saul. An entire nation is pursuing you. You're hiding out in fields and forests and caves. You're, you're scrimping and clawing to just get food in your belly. This is where David is at. And we read these psalms of lament. In fact, there is one psalm in particular that David writes while he's in this cave. This is called the Cave of, of Adullam. And, and we know that Psalm 142 is written while David's in the Cave of, of Adullam. And he says this in verse 4. He says, look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I look around me. And no one's looking at me. I'm alone in the world. No one cares about my soul. No one wants the best for me. Everybody's looking out for themselves. And I'm being hunted by the king of a nation. 3,000 men are pursuing me. And they all want to kill me for nothing. David has done nothing wrong. Remember, he's done absolutely nothing wrong out of just pure jealousy and hatred um, because David has become more famous in the people's eyes and more loved in the eyes of God, Saul wants to kill him for no reason. He's being treated un so unbelievably unjustly. I'm sure for many of you in the room, there's been moments of your life where someone has treated you unjustly. They've said something to you that wasn't fair or wasn't true or wasn't right, or maybe did something to you that wasn't fair or true, right? Maybe even this week or at Thanksgiving around the table, somebody said something that just like was not true of you, accused you of something that just was not right. There's nothing that hurts like that unjust attack. There's nothing that kind of disrupts our soul like being accused of something that's just absolutely not true. Everything in us wants to lash out and fight back. Everything in us. And David is experiencing this in a way that you and I have never experienced. 
where he's actually being hunted down. They're trying to kill him in order to, for no reason. And shortly after this psalm was written, Psalm 142, shortly after that psalm is written, David is in the cave. We don't know if it's if it, it could be it could have been days after, it could have been literally minutes after. We don't know. We don't know. David's sitting in the cave, he writes those words, no one cares about my soul. And in walks the man who wants to kill him. Because he's got to go to the bathroom. He has no idea that David's there. He has no idea that there's 400 men in that cave that want to kill him. The, the most guarded, most protected man in the entire nation walks in alone. And he drops his sword and his shield around his ankles. Because he got to go. And David's men say, now's the moment. Now is the time that God has given him into your hands. Now is the time that God wants you to kill him. And so David, make no mistake, friends, when David sneaks up behind Saul, he does not sneak, sneak up to, to snip off a piece of his robe. When David sneaks up behind Saul, he sneaks up behind Saul to take Saul's life. That's what he's going to do. He sneaks up in order to kill him right there to end all of the discomfort. He has, he has in his power, in his control, he has the ability to remove all of his discomforts. He can go back home. He can see his dad. He can see his brothers. He can eat his favorite meal again. He can, he can, he can be free from this whole thing. And he says, No. He gets up behind Saul, and somewhere deep inside of his heart, it says, no. N no. No, no you, can't, you can't do this. You, you cannot take his life. And David says, I will not take his life. I will not do it. How? How does he have that resolve? How does he have that ability to, to, to hold back? Where, where does that come from uh, in him? How, how, does he, how does he stop himself? I mean, he can literally take away all of his discomfort. He can stop all suffering in a moment and an instant. And he doesn't. Oh. The reality is that every single one of us, of, us, of us in this room at some point in time have failed where David succeeds here. We've all done this. Where, where someone has placed you in a moment of discomfort and you've just driven the sword straight through them in order to remove your own discomfort. We've all done this, right? Whether it's a person in the office who has kind of publicly belittled you or taken something from you, right? And, and you, you go straight to the boss and, and you, you get them uh, in trouble or maybe you, you spread rumors over here in order, to, in, in order to, to make them feel small. Maybe it was even this week on Thanksgiving, you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table and somebody said something about you that disagreed with you in some way, shape, or form or they, they, they attacked your, your view on politics or religion, I don't know, maybe, just saying those are things that you probably shouldn't talk about at Thanksgiving uh, anyways, and instead of just kind of swallowing it and letting it go, right, you, you just stabbed them right back. You just fired out some words and you made them feel about this big. You said, you, you stung me, but I crushed you 
We've all done this. We've all done this. Where does David's strength in this moment come from? How does he withhold this? How does he stop himself? And I would argue that it's as simple as this. His conviction outweighs his discomfort. His conviction outweighs his discomfort. I, I just said a minute ago that he is under the most immense discomfort, more discomfort than I think any of us in this room have ever suffered at the hands of another person, but his conviction outweighs his discomfort. David has, an, has, this, has this unbelievably deep conviction that the God of all things is sovereign over all things. And there's nothing happening in his life that is outside of the realm of God's control. That the Lord is the true king of all things. He believes this to be true. This, this, every ounce of his suffering is under the control of a sovereign God. And then he has another deep conviction. Deep down in his soul, he believes with all of his heart, with all of his might, that that same God loves him. Loves him far more than he could ever begin to imagine. He believes, he knows that God loves him. And he knows, with a deep conviction, that that same God will honor his faithfulness. His conviction outweighs his discomfort. And he, spends, he has spent his life preparing himself for this moment. He has spent his life building these convictions within his soul. In, in the moments of goodness, in the moments when things in his life were good, when things with his brothers were good, when things at home were good, right? When, when he's the champion of the day, defeating Goliath, he is putting into his heart and into his soul and into his mind these deep convictions. And how is he doing that? By simply knowing who God is. By simply developing an intimate, faithful relationship with the Lord. John Cryostome, the bishop of Constantinople in the early 300s, so quite a while ago, um, wrote this about this moment in David's life. He said, David leaves the cave. He, he walks out. He leaves the cave, looking in the direction of heaven with eyes now free of concern, more satisfied on that occasion than when he had overthrown Goliath and cut off the savage's head. It was, in fact, a more conspicuous victory than the former one. The spoils more majestic, the booty more glorious, the trophy more commendable. In the former case, he needed a sling and stones and a battle line. Whereas in this case, I love this line, in this case, thought counted for everything. The victory was achieved without weapons. The trophy was erected without blood being spilt. He returned, therefore, Bearing not a savage's head, I love this too, 
but a, re, but a resentment mortified and rage unnerved. Resentment mortified and rage unnerved. Spoils he disposed not in Jerusalem, but in heaven, in the city on high. Resentment mortified. He, he took all of the resentment of Saul, all, all of the rage that he had towards Saul, and he killed it. He, he mortified it. In that moment, David was more free than if he had run him through with his spear. He's free. He's free from the weight of all of that resentment, all of that anger. It is gone in that moment. When he walks out of the cave behind Saul, and Saul is in the distance and still alive and still has breath in his lungs, and David holds up the, the piece of his robe and says, Saul, look, here is all the proof in the world that I have nothing against you. David is free. He's free because he's honored God and he's walked in the way of righteousness. He has put to death the sin in his life, this, this rage and this resentment towards Saul. David has wrestled with hard questions in the good times and in the bad. What do I believe to be true about God? And how do I believe that this God wants me to think and act? He knew that God would not have him kill someone for the sake of his own comfort or revenge, simply because he knew who God was. And he allowed this knowledge of God to drive his convictions. I have a good friend, Joseph Tinney, and, and he asked me a question one time. He, he asked me two questions. He said, are, are you willing to suffer for your convictions? And the reality is, is the answer to that question, everyone would say yes. Yes. You have certain convictions that you would say, man, I'm willing to suffer for. I would not compromise these if it meant my life. I would rather die an excruciating death than fail in these areas of conviction. But then the second question was actually the trickier one. He said, would you allow innocent people to suffer for the sake of your convictions? And the purpose of Joseph's question was really this. He said, what, what is your true convictions? Right? If, if your answer is quickly, no, I, I wouldn't let innocent people die for, for my convictions. Well, then you have no convictions. You have no real convictions. But if your quick, answer is quickly, well, well, yes, I would let innocent people suffer for my convictions. Then you have no real convictions. It's meant to be a question that you wrestle through and you spend time on. And you think, what do I actually believe to be true about God? And what do I actually believe God longs for me? How do, how do, I, how do I believe that he longs for me to think? And how do I believe that he longs for me to act? And what are the, what are the convictions that are so deep that I would actually allow people that I love, innocent people that I love, to suffer rather than bending or sacrificing my own convictions? That's a hard question. 
But I believe it's a question that David has wrestled through in his mind. And he says, man, I know that there's 400 men in this cave that could suffer. They could all die. If I let Saul go, they could all die. But he says, I'm not willing to give up on this conviction because I know who my God is and I know what he would have for me. And he would not have me kill him. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about this idea of, of revenge against um, our brother. In Matthew 5, 43 through 48, he says this. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We do not repay evil with evil. We love our enemies. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to extend this type of love to those in our life, to hold deeper convictions than the average person, to hold deeper convictions on how other people should be treated and how we respond when we get cut. When we experience discomfort, rather than saying, what's the quickest way out? We should say, what is the right way to respond? How would Christ have me respond? We must realize that in our moments of discomfort, that we are at our weakest, that we are ready to sacrifice all if we experience just enough discomfort. And so we must wrestle through the question now, what are we, are we not going to compromise in the moment of discomfort? When a person in our life hurts us, when they speak against us, when they say something ill of us, when they, when they accuse us of something that is simply just not true, our, our initial reaction is going to be, how do I get out of this as fast as possible? How do I make them pay for this? But we must ask the question, how do I respond rightly as a follower of Christ, as an ambassador of Christ? How do I love them? They might say, well, why would anybody do that? Why wouldn't David have just killed Saul in the cave? Why wouldn't he have just ran him through and just walked out? He'd have been just as free, Josh. But he would not have been as free, as free in his mind. He would not have been as free in his mind. You see, David points us to the greater king. We've been saying this all along. This is our, the last week in 1 Samuel. I think we've said it every single week. David points us to the greater king. He points us to Christ. A king who would experience greater discomfort far greater discomfort than David experienced in that cave. A far greater um, injustice than David experienced in that cave. And yet would not compromise his convictions. He chose to suffer because he held deep within his, himself a conviction that said he was going to love you more than he was going to love himself that he would be willing to suffer for that conviction. He'd be willing to die for that conviction. 
that Christ, the God of all things, would say, I would give up my life in order to make a way for those that I love to return to me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He's now seated at the right hand of God. Romans 5 says it this way, Romans 5.10. For, we for while we were enemies, we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We must be a people who prepare our minds by looking to Christ. As we develop a flourishing relationship with him, we begin to know him and love him and follow him. He forms our convictions and presses them deeper and deeper. And when the moment of temptation comes, only Christ will prevail. Only Christ will prevail in that moment. In that moment, everything in us, our flesh will cry out for justice. Our flesh will cry out to, to re retaliate and seek revenge. And it will be the Spirit of God who stays our hand. Without a relationship of Christ, this idea is impossible. Without a relationship with Christ, it is not possible to consistently love your enemy. Without a relationship with Christ, without walking with him, without knowing him, without drawing near to him as David did, it is impossible to not lash out and retaliate against those who have hurt us. And so if you want to be one who loves your enemy, you want to be one who lives differently than those around you, you want to be like Christ, you need to know Christ, you need to draw near to him, is the only hope that we have. We must look to our Savior, the one who endured the most discomfort that we can possibly begin to imagine, but his convictions far outweighed his discomfort, and his convictions were that you were worth it. You were worth it. Is he worth it for you? What will you say no to in order to say yes to Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning confessing that for many of us in this room, these are not things that we've actually given much thought to. We would quickly say, well, 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 yes, I would suffer from my convictions. And yet we know that when the pressure is on, that we crumble like dust. When we get tired and we get hungry, these deep convictions that we have, shatter like glass. They bear no weight. What we need is a rock to build our convictions upon. We need a Savior who loved us more than he loved himself in that moment. He was convicted that it was worth it 
that suffering was worth it for me, for us. So will we be a people who say, it's worth it? That though none go with me, I still will follow. Because we've decided to follow you. When, the, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, as Bonhoeffer says. Would we count the cost of following you? Would you drive deep within us deep beliefs and convictions of the way that we should live, the way that we should think, the way that we should act in our days? Would we not rest in the times that are good, but would we draw near to you all the more so that when the waves come, we'll make the right call, the loving and kind and Christ-like decision to love our enemy, to endure, patiently endure evil, rather than lash out and bring retaliation and revenge to those who have wronged us. And might the world take note and when they ask, why would you do such a thing? We can declare because there's an unbelievably loving person who's done the same thing for me. And his name is Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen.